Good morning again. If you'll open your Bible to the 79th Psalm, we're going to be there in just a moment. Psalm 79. So, tell me if you've ever been in this uh, experience. So, you are having a conversation uh, with a friend or a spouse about something that you've done. Something that has caused them pain, something that is causing you pain. And you're frustrated because you know that everyone is upset and sad because of something that you did, but there's not really a lot you can do about it. I mean, it's done, it's in the past, and now you're living with the repercussions of it. If you've ever been there, ever experienced, which I assume we all have, reaping the consequences of our own actions, then you'll understand why it is such an incredible thing that sometimes God offers to take away not just our sin, but the consequences of our sin. Today, we are, uh, I'm continuing, Jacob asked me to, Uh, Jacob's sermon series on letting my soul sing. And today we're going to be singing about restoration. Uh, So in in past months, we've talked about things like, you know, this this whole sermon series is is letting my soul sing. We're studying the Psalms, but we're also studying these cries that come from deep within us. Cries as we, you know, meditate on the goodness of God, we cry out about how amazing he is. Or as we consider the trouble that we've got ourselves in or the sin that our life is embroiled in that we cry out for confession. Or when we consider that we are in deep trouble, we cry out for help or out of confusion. But today I want to combine really two of those ideas uh, to talk about the idea of restoration. So there are times, as we talked about, where through our own sin or just foolishness, we get ourselves into situations in which the natural conclusion of our actions is more than we can bear. When you, you, know, you, you come face to face with uh, something that you've done that is so egregious that maybe you're going to lose your job or uh, you know, your, your marriage is, is falling apart and you look at that and you say, I, I know that I deserve this. I know this is what my actions have led to, but I can't handle it. And so we cry out to God in times like that and say, God, I need your mercy. I need restoration, not because I deserve it, but because that's the kind of God that you are. And so today we're going to be looking at a variety of Psalms. Uh, and so Psalm 69 or 79 is the first one that we're going to be looking at. And we're going to look at a handful of Psalms and even uh, one passage outside of the Psalms to get an idea about a pattern of how these sorts of prayers go. And then That'll be about the first half of the sermon. And then after that, we're going to talk about some caveats, some things that we need to know about that. And then finally, some application for us. When might we pray a prayer like this? So we're in Psalm 79. And I want to start by showing you the pattern for this. And I've thrown up all the points on the screen here. But in Psalm 79, we're going to read verses 8 through 9. He says, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us. 
and atone for our sins for your name's sake. So this is a pattern, not always in this order, but this is the logical order we're going to talk about it in. First, when we find ourselves in situations like this, there's distress. I am in a bad place. I, I need help. I am in, in desperate need, and this is really not good. And we can see this in these verses. In verse 8, at the end, he says, we are brought very low. And, you know, I don't want to be here. This is bad. This is not good. But there's also an aspect of guilt, as we see at the beginning of verse 8. He says, do not remember against us our former iniquities. And toward the middle of verse 9, he says, atone for our sins. That we are in this bad place, we are brought very low, and the reason is because we brought this on ourselves. And yet, uh, even though we got this ball rolling, even though we're responsible for getting ourselves in the situation, uh, there is this third element. We are powerless to get ourselves out of it. Uh, And yet, we understand that God is able to. At the beginning of verse 9, it says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us. Help us, deliver us. We can't do this on our own. We need you. We are powerless, but you are powerful. Help us. And finally, there's an acknowledgement that this is a grace. As we said, this is a problem that we got ourselves into that we can't get ourselves out of. And even though we deserve to be in this distress, we ask God for grace. Because we say, as it says in verse 8, let your compassion come speedily to meet us. Atone for our sins for your namesake, in verse 9, for the glory of your name. This isn't about me. This isn't about what I deserve. This is about God's compassion. It's about God's name being glorified. We'll talk a little bit about that aspect of it in a bit. But here's the pattern. We got ourselves into a problem. It's our fault. We can't get out, but God can get us out. And we realize that even though we deserve to be here, we're going to ask God, get me out of this situation. Save me from the consequences of my actions. And like I said, we're going to look at this in a variety of psalms. Psalm 79, we're already here. So let's go back to verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 79, and we're going to see uh, the first aspect of this. He says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. This is, this is not good. I mean, blood spilled out, flesh to the birds of the air. This is like really, really, really bad. And he is recognizing, look, this is, this is a bad situation. We are in distress. But as we get to verses 8 through 10, as we just read, he says, Don't remember our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. We are guilty. We brought this on ourselves. And yes, uh, this is really bad, but we did this. And yet we see this, this next element in verses 11 and 12. Let the groans of your prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those who are doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of, your na- of our neighbors, the taunts which they have taunted us, with, with which they have taunted you, O Lord. So he says, listen to the groans of the prisoners. Groans of a prisoner, uh, not the kind of thing that's really going to 
move a lot, not something that can do much. Where, you know, in shackles, we're crying out because we are powerless. We can't do anything. And yet he acknowledges according to your great power in verse 11. And then in verse 12, he says, return sevenfold, that he entrusts God, that God is able to reverse their fortunes. God is able to help them. And why would he do that? As we already saw in verses eight, nine, eight and nine, that it's out of compassion. It's for God's namesake. It's not because of us. It's not because of something we did. Uh, it's because that's the kind of God that we serve, that sometimes he has compassion on us to the extent that he delivers us from the consequences of our own sins. So let's look at this in another psalm. This time, Psalm 38. If you'll turn over to Psalm 38. And this is uh, basically a straight up confession psalm. Some of these are more psalms of of crying out for help, but this one is very much in the vein of, of confession. In Psalm 38, we'll again read the first four verses. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Here we clearly see he is in immense distress, and it is directly as a result of his sin. And yet, we see the latter half of this psalm, verses 15 through 22, and we'll get the other two parts of this. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sins, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Here, he's crying out in verse 15. He says, for you, O Lord, do I wait. He says, even though I've I've gotten myself in this situation, I am waiting, I am hoping, because even though I'm powerless to get out of this, I know that God can deliver me. From this. And here, there are two things I really like about the psalm. One is, I think it so clearly connects sin and distress that we get ourselves into situations that are really, really bad for us. But the other thing I really like about this psalm is that he makes no attempt to say, you know, to, to, to reason with God or try and twist his arm and say, you know, God should help him. He's just like, nope. I sinned, I messed up, can you help me anyway? And I, I think in some ways that might seem a little bit entitled to us to be like, you know what, I don't deserve this, but please give it to me anyway. But I, I think it's actually quite the opposite because it is an acknowledgement that God's salvation is a grace. It's always a grace and that we don't deserve it, but we're asking God to deliver us anyway. And this puts it in direct contrast with a lot of other Psalms about crying out to God for help. Uh, You can read, there are some Psalms by David, for example, where he's like, God, I am in a distressed situation and I'm confused about why that is because you said that the righteous would not be begging bread and yet here I am in a a destitute situation and 
what's happening here? I, I don't deserve to be going through this. These Psalms totally different. It's like, yep, yeah, nope, I did this myself. I'm here because of my own actions. And yet, even in those times, there is hope. We cry out to God and we say, God, despite all of that, I still need you. I still want you. Please help me. We'll read Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Uh, and this one, uh, I'll just note while you're turning there, is kind of neat. In some of the verses we are not going to read uh, between, we'll, we'll read up to verse 7 and then skip over to 14. But in between there, there's a, an image of God picking Israel as a vine and growing them to something beautiful. And it's like, oh, I've heard that before. Uh, but in Psalm 80, verses 3 through 7, he says, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given, uh, and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. He says, why are you not answering our prayers? We need you. How long is this going to be? Because we're in a desperate situation. We have tears to drink, bread of tears. We're in bad shape. And so they cry out to God. And in verse 14, he says, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish in the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Here we see you know, our theme word, theme word restore over and over again. Restore us, O God. Have regard for this vine because we need help. And this, this psalm reminds me a little bit uh, of Exodus 34. So in Exodus 32, and we'll talk about this one in a second, uh, Moses comes down from the mountain, there's a golden calf, and God gets mad, and Moses talks to God, and uh, they reason it out. But in Exodus 34, God talks to Moses, and he says, so the natural conclusion of your actions is that I can't bear with this people anymore. I'm, I'm going to step away, and uh, I'm going to send an angel to get you to your promised land, but, but I, I can't do this. And Moses says, God... We, we can't live without you. This, that's not going to work. He cries out to God, not on the basis of, of deserving. He says, yeah, no, the nat that is the natural conclusion that you should leave. But please, please don't do that. Because if we don't have you, if we don't have your presence, we're going to die. We need you. And so we see that, that cry echoed in, in the early parts of this psalm uh, where he says, how long will you be angry with the people's prayers? We're in trouble and you're not answering our prayers and we need you. Now, whether we deserve it or not, totally different argument, but we need you. So please, please help. I want to look at 
one final passage, and as I said, this is not a psalm, but it very much fits into this idea. It's in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, uh, so it's been 70 years since they were taken into captivity, and Daniel cries out to God. And this prayer of confession, which very much fits our pattern, very much is letting our soul sing, very much a cry of restore. He says in Daniel chapter 9, we'll pick up in verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as to this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us, by his servants, the prophets. So Daniel says, God, we're in a bad situation. We brought it on ourselves because we weren't listening. I mean, you tried everything. You sent servants, you sent prophets, and Israel, deaf ears. He says in verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. In verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. But in verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. He says, we're shameful people. We are not good. We have messed up this covenant big time. But that's not who you are, God. That's, this does not reflect on you. You are a God of mercy. You are a God of compassion. And so as he continues, we'll pick up in verses 16 through 19, he is going to uh, plea with God that plead with God, that God would rescue them, not based on their own goodness, but on God's goodness. In Daniel 9, verses 16 through 19, he says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among those who are around us. Now, therefore, Oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servants and to his plea for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the cities that are called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He makes two arguments here. The first one, he says in the middle of verse 18, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. This isn't about us. This is about you and the way that you act because we know this is the God that you are. But he also says these are your people. This is, to use the language from Psalm 80, this is your vine. And this is the same argument that Moses makes at the golden calf. He says, God, if you destroy the people here, which you should because that's what we deserve. But if you do that, 
then all the nations around are going to look at this nation and they're going to say, God couldn't bring the people out of it. He couldn't do it. And not so much arguing that we're going to reflect poorly on God, but I think the other way, that we can see, uh, maybe in a passage like 1 Timothy, for example, uh, as in 1 Timothy 1, Paul makes this argument. He says that God rescued him, Paul, the chief of sinners, because if God could rescue Paul, he could do it with anybody. If God can forgive someone like Paul, he can forgive anybody. And we are a people that have in many cases gotten ourselves into trouble. It was our fault and we couldn't get ourselves out. And sometimes we appeal to God on the basis of his glory, that if he can forgive us, that it will reflect so greatly on his grace. If he can forgive us, that the people will know the kind of God he is, that even with me, the chief of sinners, he can be gracious. And if we can be the kind of people that can herald God's grace to the world, then we can take these situations where we've gotten ourselves into great trouble and turn them into something that glorifies God. And I think that is something that we can learn as we find the end of this pattern. So now I've spoken extensively about the pattern. I think you understand. But I want to now talk about a few maybe caveats. I put it as the fine print. So when does this work? When does it not work? Well, I want to say, first of all, that we are never assured God's grace. That's why it's grace. Um, there is no passage that's where God says, you know, you'll never have to endure the consequences of your sin. In fact, on the very opposite, there are a lot of passages that would speak to the opposite of that. Uh, Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins will die. Or uh, um, Exodus 34 talks about God you know, visits iniquity on the third and fourth generation. Or even in the New Testament, uh, Paul says that the wages of sin is death, that there are consequences for our actions. And the people of Israel went into captivity for the consequences of their actions. So it's not that God doesn't ever make us go through the consequences of our actions, but that sometimes he doesn't, or sometimes he lightens our sentence. I'll show you a few examples. By I want to look at three passages where the phrase, who knows, shows up in this context. The first one is probably the most famous. It's in Jonah. So in Jonah chapter 3, uh, of course, you know, God sends Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't obey God, but then he does eventually get to Nineveh. And he speaks to the people in Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be, shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah says, your city is going to be destroyed. And the people put on sackcloth. They start repenting. They start changing their ways. Now, why do they do that? It's because the king of Nineveh says, picking up in verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He says, look, God told us that we deserve to die for our sins, that he's going to destroy our city. But maybe, just maybe, if we turn our lives around, if we repent, if we come to him in sackcloth and ashes and we say, we're sorry, maybe he'll relent. We find in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
that it works. That even though they were in a distress that they had, that they had started and they were powerless to stop, they cried out to God to appeal to his grace and he gave it to them. Look at another passage, this time in the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter 2, in the earlier parts of Joel, Joel is prophesying about this plague of locusts that's going to come in and just wipe out all the crops. Uh, and in Joel chapter 2, he says, you know, this is going to come upon you. It's going to be terrible. But Joel 2 verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord, your God. And so they do. They change their lives and God does relent. He does give them grace. And so it works out for them. Who knows and yet, even though they weren't assured of grace, even though they weren't assured that the consequences of their sins would be abated, yet they, they cried out to God and he forgave them. And so, already we're through two of three. We're thinking, okay, it's pretty confident that when we say who knows, that it's like the trick word that maybe God's going to help us. But no, alas, the third one is, uh, sadly doesn't work out so well. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And of course, you know 2 Samuel 11, is uh, David and Bathsheba. David sees Bathsheba. He wants to have sex with her. So he calls her in and they do. And uh, she conceives a child. And so David kills Uriah, takes Bathsheba as his wife. And it's just a whole mess. And so Nathan the prophet comes to him in chapter 12. And he tells him this, this parable. And, Nathan, and David gets really mad. And he's like, this guy should die. And, and Nathan says, you are the man. And we pick up in verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And so here we see, I mean, such a tragic story that here is David anticipating the birth of his child. And yet God tells him because of your own sin, your child is going to die. And so David gets down on his knees. He starts fasting. He starts weeping. He starts praying. He does everything he can. He's appealing to God's grace. For seven days, he's fasting and weeping and praying. And yet at the end of seven days, the child dies. And his servants come to him and they say, David, your child is dead. And he gets up and he dresses himself and he eats food. And the servants ask him, why'd you do that? And he says in verse 22, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. And so we learn from this that God's grace is not an assured thing. Uh, that there is no magic formula for asking God to forgive us and to rescue us from the consequences of our actions. But that sometimes he does. And that leads me to my second sub-point here. And that is that this reminds us that it is always a grace. Because if you think about this, like it, if it was based on people and merit, you would think David, I mean, the man after God's own heart, surely God's going to answer his prayers the way he wants him to. But no, of our three examples, David is the one who God says, no, the child is going to die. 
And you would think, surely, if anyone God is going to say, no, I won't listen to you, it'd be a bunch of pagan people who are going to go kill his people in, you know, a couple generations. And yet, God saves Nineveh because they came and petitioned him. And so we see that this isn't about merit. This isn't about deserving. It's not about, you know, who you are. It's about God. It's always been about God. That God forgives people like Ahab. He forgives people like Manasseh. Because they asked him, because God is a God that is full of grace. And so it reminds us not to take his forgiveness for granted, not to take his uh, salvation from the troubles of our sin for granted. That God is always giving us a gift when he chooses to give us grace. And finally, uh, on this, I want to note, uh, you know, about repeat offenses. You know, we, in, the, in the American justice system, the more times you commit a crime, the more uh, harsh the sentence is. And yet, if you'll turn over to Nehemiah 9, you will find this is just one of many places where it's a whole chapter. This one happens to be like 38 verses long. And the whole thing is just uh, Israel being bad, God punishing them, them crying out, God rescuing them over and over and over and over and over again. And we're just going to read verses 26 through 31. We're going to find just in these six verses, three times that God forgives his people. In Nehemiah 9, verses 26 through 31, says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your, sp- by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. That this is the kind of God that we serve. That we might think that, you know, three times and that's it. But no, God truly shows us the 70 times 7 forgiveness that Jesus asks us to have. That God is willing to forgive over and over and over and over again. And that he rescues us from the perils of our sin again and again and again and again. Because that's the kind of God that we serve, and it is incredibly gracious of him to do that for us. And so here we have a pattern. Here we have a few examples, some uh, caveats. Now I want to ask, when would we pray a prayer like this? And I, I'm sure your brain has already gone here, but I'm going to give you a few examples. So when we cry out to God, we need restoration. When we destroy first our families. I mean, we can think about marriages that have been in serious peril when trust is broken, when people don't do what they're supposed to do. And there's just this moment in which you realize, like, this is is not going well. I brought this on myself, and yet I, I can't handle 
the, the depths to which my sin could carry me. I, I need this to stop. And so we cry out to God, God, restore this relationship. Do not let the natural consequences of my sin, my foolishness, destroy this good thing. Or we can think about uh, even more like extended families. You know, we, there are our brothers and sisters that they don't talk anymore. Uh, and, you know, mothers-in-laws and sons-in-laws, and they cause discord in the family. And they, they always get together at family reunions, and it's never good. And just over time, they get further and further away. And you wake up and you realize, what have I done? Like, I have destroyed something good that the natural consequences of my actions have had terrible repercussions. You take a minute and you, you, you just pray. Because there's nothing else you can do. You are powerless to stop it. And yet, you know that God can rescue you. And so you cry for restoration. And you can think about also in families, parents who have not been what they should. And their children fall away. And there's a sadness there. Because it's the consequences of their actions that have led to this outcome. And... we, the only thing to do is to cry out to God. The only thing is to hope in his graciousness, to hope in his power to restore. And there are other things um, that we need restoration with. Um, our health. You can think about, I mean, people who in their youth, uh, you know, sowed their wild oaks, say, uh, drunk and, and smoked, and then they get older, it takes an effect on your body, and, and you get uh, diseases and stuff, and it's a natural result of the actions that you did. And yet, you cry out to God because you can't do anything else and you cry and you hope that God will be gracious to you. Or even, not sinful things, but like foolish things. You know, the way that we take care of our body, the things that we eat. And we realize that it's having a negative toll on our bodies and we cry out to God, God help me because I got myself into this situation and I need help. Now I want to make a big caveat here. Uh, because these past three points uh, have the potential to be very offensive if I don't make this very important caveat. I am not by any means trying to say that every time a child falls away, it's because their parents caused it. I am not by any means trying to say that every time someone gets lung cancer, it's because they brought it on themselves. Or any time we have health difficulties, it's because we did it to ourselves. But I am saying that sometimes that's the case. And we know we have you know, discretion to know for ourselves when that is the case and when it's not. And when it is the case, it fits perfectly into this paradigm that we are in a terrible situation that we brought on ourselves, that we are powerless to stop, but we cry out to God because he has the power to stop it. And we know that if he is gracious with us, that he will rescue us from the consequences of our own actions. And I could go on and on with examples. I mean, we can talk about poor financial decisions that ruin your life in the future or uh, terrible things that you do that uh, ruin your potential for a job or something. And we can cry out to God in all of those situations. But I want to talk about one final way, and that is we need restoration when we destroy our relationship with God. And this one, thank God, is different from all of the other situations because in this one, there is no who knows. But when we cry out to God to rescue us from you know, a sickness, when we cry out to God to rescue us from uh, the, the terrible things that we have caused fissures in our relationships, all of those situations, there's a who knows. There's a question. But in this situation, when we cry out to God and we say, God, by my actions, by my sins, I have caused a dividing wall between us. I have caused 
a, a break in our trust. I have caught, I've said, God, I don't need you. I've said, God, you're not important to me. And that has real ramifications. But I am asking you, God, that in this time that you would forgive my sin, that you would forgive and heal and restore this breach that I have created. And in those situations, when we cry out to God, when we pursue him wholeheartedly, the answer is always yes. God will restore our broken relationships. And so as we conclude today, if that's where you are, if you're sitting here and you say, there is a restoration in my life that I need desperately, and that is my relationship with God. Or if you need any other, we would love to petition the Lord with you on behalf of his grace. And if you've never begun your journey to serve God and to give him your life, we would love to help you with that in any way we can. Please come forward as we stand and sing.